Good morning, church. Good to be in the house of the Lord with you. Thank you, ushers, as they're serving us and receiving the tithe and the offering. We're going to just jump right into the word of the Lord today. Uh, if you're visiting with us, you have stepped into week three of a series uh, out of the little epistle, First Timothy. If you have your Bible, I want to invite you to open it to First Timothy. We're in chapter three today, and what we've been doing in this series, we don't uh, always preach in this fashion, but what we've been doing in this series is just walking line by line, verse by verse, through God's Word and allowing it to speak practically uh, and applicable ways to our lives. So the question that I want you to consider as you're finding your place there in 1 Timothy is this, what is a Christian supposed to look like? Like, what does it really look like in the most practical ways? How are you supposed to even act? Or maybe there's another question beneath that surface. Does it even matter? Because, you know, we just celebrated communion and, and we declare Jesus paid it all. I couldn't earn my salvation. Even, you know, while I was dead in my sins, Jesus paid the price. And so if he did it all and I couldn't do any of it, does it matter how I actually live my life and what I look like to others. And, and in chapter 3 of 1 Timothy, Paul is going to say to us today, it absolutely does. It does matter, not so much because uh, of what it determines for your eternal uh, future, but for where you're living right now in this life. It matters. And so as we move into chapter 3, uh, what Paul's doing is he's giving qualifications to Timothy, who's the pastor of this church in Ephesus. He's writing to him to say, Timothy, these are the standards that, that I want you to have for those that are going to be leaders in the church. This is actually just a continuation of what we talked about last week, because chapter 2, he starts giving Timothy instructions for how the church is supposed to operate. He talked about prayer and how that's to be done, and then he talked specifically about uh, women in the church and some theological issues that were happening uh, surrounding them. And now we get into chapter number 3, and he's going to give some more instructions. Now it's about the leaders in the church. So did you find First Timothy yet? All right, 1 Timothy chapter 3. If you haven't found it yet, we got a really big Bible showing up back here behind me. So look at verse 1. Paul begins this way. He says, here's a trustworthy saying. Whoever aspires to be an overseer desires a noble task. Now, when he says, here's a trustworthy saying... There's actually five times in the pastoral epistles that he does this. And he's saying, this is something that, that you ought to remember, that, that we all should remember. This is uh, maybe a, a value in the church. And this value that he begins with is whoever aspires to be an overseer desires a noble task. Now, let me just touch on something briefly right here because uh, I've grown up in the church and maybe many of you have, but maybe we've grown up in, in different types of churches, uh, different denominations even. And a lot of times people get to this chapter in this book and we get tripped up over the titles because in this translation, we're reading the word overseers. In another translation, you might read bishops. Uh, later here in verse 8, we're going to read deacons, but some might read ministers. Sometimes the word elder is used. And so, you know, sometimes we get confused about what a title is and what a title means. Uh, and, and sometimes the titles in the church can trip us up. I actually like the New Living Translation of Overseers. It simply says church leaders. <laughs> like, that works for me. 
If you desire to be a church leader, you desire a noble task. The focus of what Paul is saying here is on the qualifications, not the job description. So that, that, that's why if you, if you focus on these terms and, and uh, look at it in one church, it might mean a different task. We might call somebody a deacon in one church and, and they mow the grass because deacons are servants. And then you go to another church and you call somebody a deacon and they're actually a, a, they, they're on the board. Uh, and, and a lot of different meanings. The reason that we have the same words in different meanings is because when you read chapter three, what you don't get is a job description. We don't know exactly what their job was. What we do have is character traits, qualifications for them to be leaders in the church. So I just wanna say that as we jump in. Don't get hung up on the titles that are here. The first thing Paul says about church leaders is this. Leadership is an honor. It's an honor. If you want to be a pastor, that's an honorable thing. You want to teach a class, that's an honorable thing. Can I, can I just brag for a moment and say, I think I have the best job in the world. Like you, you might think that about your job, you're entitled to it, but I got to say, I think I have the best job in the world. I mean, I have the privilege of, well, first of all, I, I get to lead the only organization in human history that Jesus guaranteed would succeed. So that's, that's pretty good. That's pretty good. Jesus said not even the gates of hell will prevail against the church. So as long as we stay in the lane of what he's building, guarantee on this thing working out for us. But I get the privilege to be a part of the highest highs in people's lives. Uh, just this week, we got, we got the call on Monday that, that uh, a young family in our church, Tommy and Steph, they had a new baby girl. It's like, man, praise God. Those, those are the moments we live for. Uh, but I also get to be a part of the lowest lows in people's life. This coming Friday, I'll be doing a, a funeral service for a family in our church here. And, and so get to see all of those things. It is an honor. It's an honor to be able to serve the church. Now, I will say, I, I saw this week, maybe you saw this in the news, that, uh, that, that UPS agreed to a contract for their drivers. Did you see this? Their drivers are now gonna get paid $170,000 a year in salary and benefits. I ain't gonna lie. For a moment, I questioned if I had the best job in the world. I was like, I mean, what can Brown do for you? Like, right, $170,000 plus benefits. And all the Amazon drivers started salivating, right? Like, like come on, hey, share the love. I had a, a mentor of mine years ago. Uh, he used to actually tell young, young men and women that were aspiring to be in ministry. He would tell them, he would say, well, if you feel like you're called of God, let me encourage you with this. If you can do anything else other than answer the call to pastoral ministry, do that. <laughs> and then after he would let like, the nervousness of the moment settle, he would say, but if you can't, then answer the call. And that might sound like an overstatement, but the, the truth is he had lived long enough and seen enough to know that there, there are some times that the only thing that will keep you committed is the call of God. Knowing that God's call is on your life is the only thing that'll keep you. And by the way, that, that's not me trying to elevate like my job to say it's more important than yours. I also think that's true in a lot of other areas. Next Sunday is back to school Sunday. We're gonna be honoring uh, our students, praying for them and, and teachers and administrators. And I know many teachers, even some in this church that you could have left that job for a better paying gig a long time ago, except for one thing, you feel the call of God 
to be in that classroom to influence those students. And, and so you have to know that the call of God is there on your life to do what he's called you to do, whether that's in vocational ministry or, or in a public school or another secular workforce. But Paul says this in verse one, he says, to be an overseer, to be a leader, one who teaches the word is a noble, it's a noble task. Here's what James, the brother of Jesus had to say. You don't need to turn here, but I want you to see this verse on the screen. In James chapter three, verse one, he said, not many of you should become teachers, my fellow believers, because you know that we who teach will be judged more strictly. That's what the word says. If you're one, now to Alicia, she just preached on Thursday night to the teenagers. I don't know if you read this verse before you preached, but I'm sorry to tell you, Alicia, you're gonna be judged more strictly, the Bible says, as a teacher of the word. The next verse gives a little comfort in saying, look, nobody's perfect. We all stumble in many ways, verse two says. Anyone who's never at fault in the, what they say is perfect. I, I've, I've stood in front of people enough times to know I'm not perfect. He said, a person that never faults in what they say is perfect. They're able to keep their whole body in check. But that doesn't negate the, the point he makes. Those who teach, not many of you should desire to teach because you'll be, you'll be judged more strictly. Why? Why are you gonna be judged more strictly because you teach the word? Well, the, the, the inference of the word of God is that you are gonna be judged on what you know. And so if you stand up to be the teacher, you're, you're assuming you have more knowledge than the student. And so you're gonna be judged according to what you know. In fact, in Romans chapter one, verse 20, the Bible says this, for since the creation of the world, God's invisible qualities, his eternal power and his divine nature have been clearly seen, being understood from what has been made so that people are without excuse. So the inference there is if God's invisible qualities weren't clearly seen, if his divine nature wasn't known, well, then you would have an excuse. You know, I've heard people say that before, like, how can a loving God, you know, send people to hell? Well, what about the people that never heard the gospel? What about the people that didn't know better? Romans 1 says that person doesn't exist. They might not have sat in a church. They might not have heard uh, the, the name of Jesus or the gospel proclaimed, but God's divine nature, his eternal qualities are evident so that men are without excuse. Even Jesus told a parable to his disciples about when he, when he comes back. He said, this is what it's gonna be like. Now, he didn't say this is what's gonna happen. It, it's a parable. He said, this is what it's gonna be like. In Luke chapter 12, verse 47, he said, the servant who knows the master's will and does not get ready and does not do what the master wants will be beaten with many blows. But the one who does not know and does the things deserving punishment will be beaten with few blows. So like slightly less severe flogging if you didn't know. Like, but the point Jesus is making is like if, you, if the servant knew what the master wanted when the master returns. In fact, the, Peter asked him, he's like, is this for everybody or just us? Like that was the question Peter asked. And Jesus says this. He says, from everyone who has been given much, much will be demanded. And from the one who has been entrusted with much, much more will be asked. 
And so Paul is reminding Timothy, hey, you want, you want to be a leader in the church? If you want to aspire to leadership, that's a noble task, and it demands a high standard. So in the next 11 verses, what he's going to do is he's going to, he's going to give him the standard. He's going to say, this is what we expect from the leaders in the church, Timothy. Now, listen, you may be here today and you say, I have no desire to be a leader in the church. I'm never going to get up there and do what you're doing. I don't, I don't even want to, I don't want to lead any ministry. So I, I can skip today, right? Like this is a free day for me. It's a pass. Like I don't, I'm not going to do your job. I don't want your job. I don't want to be a leader. Well, you might not ever be a leader, but I hope you'll serve. I hope you'll serve in the church because that's what you were saved for. Ephesians 2.10 says that we were, uh, we were God's handiwork, his workmanship created in Christ to do good works that God ordained in advance for us to do. So hopefully you'll serve somewhere. But even if you're here today and you say, I'll, I'll, never be, I'll never be a pastor, I'll never be a teacher, an overseer, I don't want to be a deacon or none of that stuff. Why does 1 Timothy chapter 3 matter to me? Some people would read it and they would say, well, I know why we have that there. We have that there so we can keep you accountable, pastor. <laughs> like, that's our checklist for you. Keep you in line. Are you doing these things? That's what we want to know. Are you measuring up? It's not what this is for. Let, let me just encourage you, though the Bible is clear that those who teach will be graded on a steeper curve, even though that's true, the answers on the test don't change. In other words, a teacher might be graded on a steeper curve, but the standards, though they might be higher, they're still the standards that all of us are to aspire to. It's, it, there's, not, there's not like a, a, a pastor version of Christianity and then a Christian light. Like that, doesn't, that doesn't exist. So when we look at Paul's standards and he says, hey, th these, these are the standards for leadership in the church. You ought to read it. Even if you say, I never want to be a leader in the church. You ought to read it and say, these are the standards for followership in the church. Like this is, this is what the leaders are to embody because Paul said, hey, follow me as I follow Christ. In his second letter to Timothy, he said, Timothy, take the things I taught to you and teach it to other men so that they can teach other people. But the point is these standards that leaders ought to exemplify are the standards for the church to aspire towards. So let's look at them. And we'll just read verse 2 through 7 together. It says, Now the overseer is to be above reproach, faithful to his wife, temperate, self-controlled, respectable, hospitable, able to teach, not given to drunkenness, not violent but gentle, not quarrelsome, not a lover of money. He must manage his own family well and see that his children obey him. And he must do so in a manner worthy of full respect. If anyone does not know how to manage his own family, how can he take care of God's church? He must not be a recent convert or he may become conceited and fall under the same judgment as the devil. Verse seven, he must also have a good reputation with outsiders so that he will not fall into disgrace and into the devil's trap. Now, before we unpack any of this, let me just point out a few things that are not on the list that, that some people, if they don't read this, might assume are on, the are on the list. It doesn't say leaders are the ones who have been here the longest. Because a lot of times in the church, people tend to think that way. Like if I just you know, sit third row and ride pine for 50 years, eventually everybody will listen to me. I'm in charge now, right? 
No, that's, that's not in here at all. It doesn't say the leaders are the ones who give the most. That's an American mindset that we might try to uh, impose on the word, but it's not there. It doesn't say the one who has the most charisma is the leader in the church. It doesn't say anything about the one that's the most popular or even the most talented. Oftentimes we, we equate anointing to leadership. And just because somebody's gifted and talented, we just assume they're in charge. It doesn't say that. It doesn't even say that the leader is the most educated. And that one might surprise a lot of people because you, know, you think, well, really? It doesn't say the leader has to be the most educated? Listen, I've met people with more degrees than a thermometer. But they have the integrity of a fossil. I mean, just brittle, fragile, just no, no integrity to them whatsoever. All the education in the world, but no integrity. Now, there, there is a responsibility to be good students of the word. In fact, Paul says in his next letter to Timothy, study to show yourself approved of God, a worker who does not need to be ashamed, who rightly divides the word of truth. So we absolutely need to be students of the word. Even in this same list, talking about deacons down in verse nine, he says they must keep hold of the deep truths of the faith. So that's absolutely a part of it. But understand this, the major emphasis of this list that we just read is not even spiritual. It's really practical. In fact, you could use this list for hiring uh, at your job. Like it's a really practical list. And so the real concern when we read this is we realize Paul's most concerned for the reputation of the church with the onlookers in Ephesus. It's not so much about the spiritual qualifications as much as it is having a higher moral standard than a watching world. See, the problem in Ephesus and in America today is we have too many Christians that were letting their moral code be set by an immoral society. Woo, that preached way better than you responded. Like, that, that was gold right there. I don't know. Maybe, maybe you missed that. But how many of you know it's true? If we're not careful, we, we take our cues on what is acceptable, on what is right, on what is righteous from an unrighteous world. And so Paul says, no, 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 you ought, the Holy Spirit ought to be doing a sanctifying work on the inside of you. The church should not reflect the culture. It ought to reflect what was modeled through the cross. And when you compare what Paul says to this church about leveling up, and you look at 1 Thessalonians, there's quite a contrast. Let me just show you what Paul said to another church in another city. In 1 Thessalonians 1, Paul said to them, he said, you became imitators of us and of the Lord, for you welcomed the message in the midst of severe suffering with joy given by the Holy Spirit. And so you became a model to all the believers in Macedonia and Achaia. The Lord's message rang out from you, not only in Macedonia and Achaia, your faith in God has become known everywhere. Therefore, we don't even need to say anything about it. Like Paul didn't even have a list for them. He was like, you, you guys followed your leaders. You followed the Lord. The Holy Spirit is working in your life. Everybody knows about your faith because the life you're living bears witness to the work of redemption on the inside. But to Ephesus, he's going, look, come on. 
come up, come up. Let, let what God is doing on the inside of you be reflected on the outside of your life. So in verse eight through 10, he gives a similar list to the one we read about overseers. This list is for deacons. And again, uh, it's not a job description. It's character traits. It's characteristics that the church ought to embody. So uh, here's what I wanna do, because I just don't have time to, to cover all of them and, and without making this a 14-week series. And I don't wanna do that. I'm gonna finish this thing in a couple weeks. So what I decided is I just wanted to pick out a couple of the traits that caused the most controversy. Uh, didn't intend to do this when I started this series, but it kind of feels like that's the theme. Week after week, we keep getting in the weeds on problem verses, so let's just go there again. And one of the questions that gets raised out of 1 Timothy chapter 3 is this, who gets to be a leader? Who gets to be a leader? Because verse 2 says he's to be faithful to his wife. And I think that's a good translation of, of what Paul was emphasizing Essentially, that the leader is to be a, a, a one-woman man. And he uses the same qualifications in chapter 5 about women who are uh, widows, who are worthy of receiving the offerings and assistance from the church. They, they were to have been uh, one-man women. In other words, not, not immoral uh, women, but women that were faithful to their husbands in their lives while their husbands were alive. Some churches, though, they, they read this verse, and an older translation would say, he must be the husband of one wife, and they take it to mean several different things. I'll just give you some of the interpretations. One is, if you've ever been divorced, well, you can't serve as a pastor or a deacon in the church because it says he must be the husband of one wife. Some take it to mean only men can be pastors or deacons because it says he other people uh, would interpret this and say only men uh, can serve in any leadership capacity or others would say you can serve a as, a, as a deacon or a pastor if you were divorced and remarried, but only if your divorce and remarriage happened before you got saved because we're made new in Christ and so we kind of wipe the old slate and you start over. Other people would say you can serve in a leadership position, but only if the divorce happened because of scriptural grounds defined by Jesus and by the Apostle Paul, whether it was adultery or if it was abandonment by your spouse. Again, Paul's primary concern in writing to Timothy about leaders in Ephesus was the reproach that would come against the church if they weren't living, like you're claiming that you have the spirit of Jesus on the inside of you and your life looks no different than anyone else outside. So, so Let's get to it. How do we interpret this? In the church you're attending with grace. That's the short answer. We interpret it with grace. In other words, we have both men and women that serve in this church in leadership positions. Uh, and the, the reason is because though, yes, Paul said he is to be a man, uh, a man of one wife, we also know that Paul mentions women who are deacons in the church. In other churches, he mentions Phoebe and Junia. And in this church, Priscilla was a, a leader and a teacher in the church. We also in this church have single adults that serve as deacons or elders in the church. We have not just married, not just because it says he is a husband. We believe singles can lead the church. You say, well, wh why do you take that stance? Well, if we didn't believe singles could lead the church, Paul couldn't have led the church. Paul was single. Barnabas couldn't have been a leader in the church. Probably Timothy was single and couldn't have been a leader. 
And by the way, Jesus wouldn't have qualified either. We also have people that serve in leadership in this church that have been divorced. You say, where do you get that? Well, let me tell you the question we don't ask in determining qualifications. The question we don't ask is, do you have a past? Because if that's the question, how many of you know none of us are qualified? Like, if, if that's the question that, that determines your ability to lead, none of, us, none of us get to lead. That's why Paul says in chapter one, here's a trustworthy saying and worthy of full acceptance. Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners, and I'm the worst. <laughs> that's what Paul said. I'm the worst one. And yet here he is leading and pastoring and planting churches and writing epistles in the word of God. So the question that we do ask is, are you living a life above reproach. In fact, verse two to verse seven in the original language is framed in what is called an inclusia. It's a literary bracketing device that says everything here fits under this subject heading. And the subject heading is verse two, above reproach. Everything after verse two is examples of what it looks like to live a life above reproach. And then he does it again in verse eight, talking about the deacons. And the heading in verse eight is worthy of respect. So everything he says about deacons after that are examples of what it means to be worthy of respect. So, so the question that we ask if you're, if you're married is, are you living a life of sexual purity? Like, just being a husband of one wife is not the only stipulation. There's plenty of married men that stay up into the early hours of the morning looking at pornography on the internet. They're not, they're not worthy to be leaders in the church. If you're a single adult, we ask the same question. Are you living a life of sexual purity? If you've been divorced, if you've been remarried, we ask the same question question. Now understand there is a vetting process. Like if you, if you get divorced on Monday and marry somebody else on Friday, come to the altar Sunday and ask for forgiveness and say, look, now I'm above reproach. Like we're not putting you in leadership. Like we got questions about what happened in the last seven days. And we see this in the text. Like look at verse four. Paul says, he must manage his own family well. Like that doesn't happen in a moment. That, that, that means we know this person. We've journeyed with them. We understand, we see their family. It says, and see that his children obey him and he must do so in a manner worthy, full of respect. In other words, it's not just that his kids obey. There's plenty of people that can, you know, threaten their kids in the church parking lot within an inch of their life. If you, and then, you know, oh man, their kids are so well-respected, like sweat beads coming down the kid's head, you know. No, he says their kids honor them. They lead their family well in a way that is worthy of respect. Verse five says, if anyone does not know how to manage his own family, how can he take care of God's church? Then when you skip down into verse nine and 10, where he's talking about the deacons, those that are worthy of respect, he says in verse nine, they must keep hold of the deep truths of the faith with a clear conscience. They must first be tested. And if there's nothing against them, let them serve. So when we're asking questions, is someone worthy to serve in the church? I always want to be careful that I'm not setting a standard higher than Jesus sets for people being able to serve in the church. I mean, think about the first person that Jesus ever revealed he was the Messiah to. 
I mean, of all, the, of all the people that he could have told that to, the first person that Jesus revealed himself to be the Messiah to was a woman who had been married five times, and the woman she was currently with was not her husband. Now, mind you, Jesus didn't make her a, an elder or a deacon in the church, but he told her before anyone else that he was the Messiah, and she went and told everyone in her town, and they came out to meet him. He stayed there for two more days to... to to share the gospel. In fact, at the end of that story, they said, we, we believed because of your testimony to her, but now we believe because we've heard it for ourselves. There was a woman that God let in his inner leadership circle. Her name was Mary Magdalene. But before she could get in the leadership circle, he cast seven demons out of her. I think about his conversation with, with John after his crucifixion and Resurrection. He meets him on the shore, and, and John is, you know, he, he's failed. As a leader, he has failed. He denied three times that he even knew Jesus. The third time, it was to a little girl. I mean, he just, he totally bombed as a leader. You know what list Jesus gave him before he handed him the authority to lead the church? He said, do you love me? The second criteria was this, do you love me? And then he had a third question, do you love me? So I want to be real careful that we don't impose standards that even Jesus wouldn't put on people to carry a position of leadership in the church. The point is this, while there are absolutely things that disqualify, disqualify people and their credibility from being leaders, there absolutely are those things. The point is this, your past should not define your potential. Your past should not define your potential. Here, here's the second question I wanna, I wanna press into as I read through this long list. Here's one that gets lots of people. Should leaders drink alcohol? I told you we were gonna get into the weeds with it in this series, so. Verse three says, now an overseer is not given to drunkenness. Verse eight says, in the same way, deacons are not indulging in much Wine. Can I just acknowledge there have been endless debates about this conversation? Endless debates. And, and let me save you the research, okay? If you're a person that says, I don't think there's anything wrong with uh, a Christian drinking alcohol, let me save you the research. You can find the verses in the Word of God to defend that stance, 100%. You can find them, you can bring them to me, you can show all your friends, this is what the Bible says. If you're a person that, that thinks it's not right for Christians to drink alcohol, we should not drink alcohol, we shouldn't be partakers of, of that, let me just tell you, you can find the verses just as easily to make your point, to make your case. Let me just tell you what you won't find, okay? Let's just shorten the conversation. Here's what no one's gonna find in the Old Testament or the New Testament. You cannot find anywhere in the Bible that condones drunkenness. You, you can argue all day about the nuances of having a glass of wine with dinner or you shouldn't do that. Save that for another time. You can't find anywhere in the scripture that condones drunkenness. So like if, if you're a person that's trying to use the Bible like to, to justify just getting wasted or you know just on holidays, special occasions, you know, 4th of July, my birthday, look, you might have a theological problem, but more than that, you might have a drinking problem because that, that's just not, that's not in there. But for me, 
and I think for the Apostle Paul here in 1 Timothy 3, the conversation is not even about what is my right. The conversation is about what is wise. And I say that because Paul's priority here is that leaders in the church live above reproach. What does that mean? That's an interesting word, reproach. Let me give you a definition. Reproach means a cause or occasion of blame, discredit, or disgrace. So let me ask you, how many times do you think it would take for me to go out and get blitz-faced drunk How many times do you think that would need to happen for people to have an occasion of blame, discredit, or disgrace? Yeah, I I go with one. One time, those pictures show up, that video pops up on social media, and I'm gonna promise you, people that don't know me, never been to this church, could care less uh, about anything happening here this morning, they're gonna jump in the comments. They're gonna have something to say about me, about the assemblies of God, about those church folks. They're gonna have something to say about you because you checked in here three months ago at some event. And I'm like, I can't believe you'd follow that charlatan. Who, you know, how many of you know that's just the truth? And, and so that, that's why as a minister in the assemblies of God, this is a, a, a cooperative fellowship of pastors. Every year, ministers in the assemblies of God, we, we sign a covenant that says we're gonna live our lives above reproach, avoiding even the appearance of evil. And so we're gonna totally abstain from alcohol. And, and that's, that's not a stance that I take because of an Old Testament law or a New Testament law. I take that stance because of the law of sowing and reaping. Like I think it's a more critical law to consider that if I'm gonna live my life above reproach, I have to realize the law of sowing and reaping is at work. The law of sowing and reaping says you always reap what you sow. You always reap after you sow. And you always reap more than you sow. The reaping might not come in my lifetime. It might come in my daughter's lifetime. It might come in my grandchildren's lifetime, but it's coming and it's coming in more. And so here's the truth. Again, I'm not here to like browbeat anybody on on nuances of understanding scripture, but just just hear my heart. There there is a harvest that that we reap as a nation because of our obsession with alcohol that nobody wants. Like nobody, regardless of their views, nobody wants the harvest that we reap as a nation. The Center for Disease Control and Prevention says over 88,000 people die every year because of sickness or disease that can be directly related to the use of alcohol. The US Library of Medicine says 1.2 million visits to local emergency rooms because of alcohol, creating 7,459 unintended deaths, 28,696 murders, 19,347 suicides, 10,228 deaths involving automobiles, and all of that at the cost to the U.S. economy of $223,500,000,000. And what none of that accounts for is the number of children who are abused by parents and guardians in homes, marriages that are destroyed, lives that are wrecked because of alcohol use. And so for me, for me, and I believe the inference of Paul here is this is not about 
your rights. This is about what is wise. And Paul says, my heart is that when, when the watching world in Ephesus looks at the church, they go, they're, they're living at a higher standard. Their morals are different. Their, their code of conduct has been influenced by the work of redemption through the cross. Now, you, you might hear that and say, well, Pastor Ann, it sounds like you've got a really soft stance on the first issue <laughs> about who can be a leader. And then you have this really kind of hard stance on the second. And, and, and I, I'll give you that. I'll say, you know what, you're right. I do. And I think it's a good rule of life. I think when it comes to, uh, when it comes to other people, uh, we know we err. That's what it said in James. Everyone errs. No one's perfect. But if I'm going to err when it comes to other people's opportunities, when it comes to what other people have the potential of doing and being in Christ Jesus, if I'm going to err, I want to err on the side of grace. But when I'm talking about my own life, when I'm talking about living my own life to honor the Lord, I want to err on the side of holiness. Like no one is ever going to cross the threshold of the pearly gates and regret that they lived so much like Jesus. <laughs> like that won't happen. There will be plenty of people, the Bible says, that they'll be saved, but only through tears because their life and all that it produced was burned up like wood, hay, and stubble on a fire. There was nothing to it. And so I wanna err on the side of grace when it comes to other people, but I wanna err on the side of holiness when it comes to my own life. Again, there's so many things we could talk about here. I just wanted to take a couple of them to, to acknowledge, first of all, that yeah, these, these things are tough to, to nuance and live out, uh, to, to understand in our context. Another one I wish we had more time to talk about is um, he addresses money. And it's so, it's so easy for us to, to read scripture in the 21st century through a capitalistic lens, right? Like we define success based on money, wardrobe, and we kind of measure each other up. We determine, you know, who seems the most successful or spiritual or qualified for leadership based on those things. I don't have time to go into that today. We'll, we'll, we'll end where we're ending, but I, I do want to just, I want to read one statement to you that uh, Os Guinness made. It was a commentary on this, this passage about money and the American culture. He said, if a man is drunk on wine, you'll throw him out. But if he's drunk on money, you'll make him a deacon, right? Like, ouch, burn. But isn't that, doesn't that speak to our, our Americanized capitalistic lens? And what Paul says is like, like it, it, there's not a job description here. He doesn't say, I want the deacons to mow the lawn and you know, count the offering. He doesn't say, I need overseers to do hospital visitations. Like there's, there's no job description here. He's talking about the reputation of the church. And again, again, th th there's, no, there's no pastor version of Christianity and then a Christian light version for the rest of us. So rather than reading this and saying, well, uh, now I know how to keep tabs on you, what we ought to do is say, Lord, help us to, to live, to live a life above reproach, a life that is worthy of respect. And then we get to the end of the chapter here. And verse 14 and 15, we've actually read every week of this series because 
This is Paul's explanation of why he's writing the letter. We'll just read it one more time today. Verse 14, he says, although I do hope to come to you soon, Timothy, I'm writing you these instructions so that if I am delayed, you'll know how people ought to conduct themselves in God's household, which is the church of the living God, the pillar and the foundation of the truth. What a reminder right there that like God's household, you and me, the way we live, this is the foundation of the pillars of the truth. Like how, like most people aren't gonna read this book. They're gonna read you. They're gonna read me. And so the word is solid, but it's on a shaky foundation if our life is not above reproach. And then he says in verse 16, and we'll end with this verse, right at the end of the chapter, Paul says, beyond all question. And I had to laugh when I read that because if he only knew how much the church would be divided in our understanding of everything he just said before that, it's like a a real breath of fresh air to say this next thing I'm gonna say, it's beyond all question. Like everybody agrees unanimously with this conviction as Christians. The mystery, he says, from which true godliness springs is great. Like there's lots of, there's lots of things we don't fully understand, but the, the mystery that true godliness springs for, from is, is great. And then the next thing that he says here, all scholars agree that the rest of verse 16 was a hymn of the church. It, it would be like me closing this message and saying the words to the song we sang earlier. So what Paul is doing is he's, he, he's reminding Timothy uh, that this, this is the mystery that true godliness springs from. We sing about it. That's why it's, it, it's so important, and I'm so thankful for Kayla and our other worship leaders that they're intentional to, to lead us in songs that, that are gospel-centric. You know, I mean, there's all, there's all kinds of, there's endless options for music out there. And honestly, um, a lot of the stuff that, that is out there available today, it, it's very self-centered. It's, I'm this, I feel this way, I love that, and I pre- and, and sometimes that's appropriate, but we have to be careful that we don't put a set list together of three of the top 20 songs and we spend 25 minutes singing about our own feelings. That's not worship. So I'm grateful because the theology we remember is the theology we sing. I mean, let's be honest. Most of you aren't gonna remember much of what I said after a few days, but you might have that song stuck in your head that declares who Jesus is. And that's what this was. So Paul reminds Timothy here, beyond all question, the mystery from which true godliness springs is great. And then he He begins to quote the hymn of the church. He appeared in the flesh, was vindicated by the spirit, was seen by angels, was preached among the nations, was believed on in the world, was taken up in glory. See, proper worship in the church has always been anchored to the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus, to his glorious ascension, to the proclamation of the gospel. 
Timothy could be encouraged right here, even though he was dealing with difficult people, even though he was dealing with you know, some, some, some leaders that weren't really measuring up. Uh, he, could, he could be encouraged by this reminder. We can be encouraged if we do what this song tells us to do, come back to the cross. You wanna know the true mystery of godliness? Come back to the cross. Come back to this story of redemption. He appeared in the flesh. That's, that's the hope that, that God became flesh, that, that we, we celebrated communion earlier to say that God was not just some, you know, some cosmic power that wielded salvation. No, he, he walked in our shoes. He, he felt, Isaiah 53 says, our sorrows. He experienced our grief. He bore our sickness and disease in his body on the cross. He appeared in the flesh. And then he says he was vindicated by the Spirit. Like the Holy Spirit settled on Jesus in the form of a dove when John baptized him in the Jordan River. Paul says it was the same Spirit that raised Christ from the dead. His spirit lived in Jesus. He was vindicated from the grave by the Holy Spirit. Then he says, he was seen by angels. You remember the, the story on Easter Sunday morning, the women come to the tomb and there's the angels. Why do you look for the living among the dead? He's not here. He's alive. Don't you remember what he told you? And then 40 days later, Jesus ascends bodily in their sight and they're looking up and all of a sudden angels appear again and they say men why do you stand here gazing into the sky this same Jesus who ascended will come again in like manner and Paul says don't forget he was seen by angels and he was preached among the nations and believed on in the world that's why we're sitting here with this book open on a Sunday morning in Wrightsville Pennsylvania like, don't forget the power of the gospel to save and transform lives and cities like Ephesus and nations like America. And he was taken up in glory. And with that is the promise, so shall we be taken up in glory. And Timothy could have hope in that. Like, on my darkest day, in my most hardest day of ministry, like, one of these days, Jesus is coming again in the clouds and we'll be caught up to meet him together in the air. And so shall we ever be with the Lord. That's the, that's the incredible mystery from which true godliness springs. That's the story we ought to live out of every day of our life. As we close today, I wanna to just invite you, if you could, would you stand with us today just to honor the presence of the Lord once again? I wanna invite you to just take a moment, bow your head with me. I know we've unpacked a lot of scripture today and, and some of it, to be quite honest, we, we probably in this room have, have many different understandings of some of these verses, but here's the challenge that I want you to consider as we pray. Am I living above reproach? Is a watching world seeing something different in my life because of the spirit of Jesus that lives on the inside of me? Or am I allowing a, a secular, godless culture to set the standard for my values? God, help us today as we pray, as your church. Lord, I remember what James said, that none of us are perfect. 
And, and we all fall short, Romans says, of your glorious standard of righteousness. And yet there is a mystery of true godliness that springs out of our being that is great. And it all comes back to what we celebrated today in communion. It comes back to the death, burial, and resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ. It comes back to the power of his Holy Spirit who vindicated him and who also vindicates us when we walk in the power of that same spirit. God, help us to, 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 to live out the gospel that saves us to our family, to our friends, as our culture continues to, to slide down a slippery slope of depravity. And your word says it's only going to get steeper and it's only going to fall farther. God, let this be the hour. Let this be the generation. Let us be the spotless bride of Christ that shines in the darkness like stars in the universe. God, help us to live lives above reproach, worthy of respect, and to live out true godliness for your name and for your glory. And all God's people said amen. 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 Come on, if you love the Lord and his word, let's just give him praise together one more time.